And this evening, we are recording a study in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. The subject being the redemption of the purchased possession. And it is our custom in these meetings to read a portion of scripture together. And those who are listening to this recording may like to share in that reading with us. So if, if they will, they can switch off for a while, while they and we read together the first chapter of the book of Ruth. In our last study, we approached the section of this um, part of Ephesians 1, which deals with the witness of the Spirit. We have now traversed verses 3 to 14, with the exception of the final note in chapter in verse 14. We've seen the will of the Father, which goes back before the foundation of the world, choosing those that he marked off for inheritance. We've seen the work of the Son in the fullness of time, redeeming those who have been marked off for the inheritance. And now we see the witness of the Spirit, not leaving us blank and wondering, but giving us the seal and the earnest until the inheritance is ours. So we're a blessed people, aren't we? We've got a threefold cord, surely, as the scripture says, that is not easily broken. Well, now last time, when we were looking at the seal and the earnest, we discovered in the epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 2, that in that day, not now, but in that day, they had two other things which accompanied this seal and earnest. They had the confirmation, and they had the anointing. Now, the confirmation is mentioned in more places than one, confirming the word with signs following. We have no signs following. And the anointing was of such a character that the first epistle of John says, you have the anointing and you have no need that anybody teach you. Now, that's not our position. But we've still got the seal and the earnest, although we haven't got the evidential external signs and wonders and miracles. Well, now that leads on to our present study. It says, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So that this earnest is in view of a future inheritance. Well, that's usually the case, isn't it? You don't have the whole thing at once and you don't put down the deposit. You don't put down as a deposit the complete payment. It's a small thing, but it's a pledge. And we have with us the pledge. What that inheritance is like, all the glory of it, well, we can only imagine, and I dare say we are very, very far off. But we know this, that as surely as God is wise and good and true, that for which Christ died will be abundantly and blessedly filled to the brim. Well now, what does it mean unto the redemption of the purchased possession? You see that in this chapter, it uses redemption twice. In verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Well, that word forgiveness means to set a prisoner free. So the first aspect of redemption is to deliver you from the bondage of sin and death. But now there's another aspect of redemption, a future one. Because of sin and death, the inheritance which was ours has been forfeited. And unless it is redeemed, we'll never enjoy it. Now that is embedded in the Old Testament scripture types, and we're going to turn presently back again to the book we just commenced to read. But before we do so, I would like you to notice that in the epistle to the Romans, redemption is twofold. One, a redemption from sin. The other, redemption of something in the future. It's good to get parallel passages. So should we start there? Romans the third chapter and Romans the eighth chapter. Romans the third chapter. Verse 23 and 24. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, 
being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there is a redemption at the very beginning that sets the sinner free. Now when you come to chapter 8, you'll find that redemption is in the future. He says in verse 22 of Romans the 8th chapter, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting, waiting for the adoption, namely the redemption of our body. Now in the earlier verse, he says in verse 15, that we have the Spirit of adoption. Well, that's the earnest. It's also called the first fruits. We have the spirit of adoption now. We're waiting for the reality presently. So Ephesians 1 says, we have the adoption because of the will of the Father. We have the earnest that pledges that we shall enter it fully. And just as Romans 8 says, we're waiting for the redemption of our body. So Ephesians 1.14 says, until the redemption of the purchased possession, which includes this resurrection status, this adoption in its fullest reality, and heirs of God indeed. Uh, we are heirs in prospect just now, and I doubt whether you'd get anything on it if you went to one of these folks with three brass balls outside their shop. Some people can, with an inheritance down here, but here's something that cannot be bartered or forfeited or lost or squandered. No moth, no rust, no robbers. Talk about a guilt-edged security, friends. This is it. And yet, how it's despised, isn't it? How it's passed by. Even believers themselves seem to have very little conception of its wonder. Well, now we come back to Ephesians. And there are two methods of illustrating the use of this expression unto the redemption of the purchased possession. One is because it was an allusion to Roman law, which was in operation at the very time that the Apostle wrote. Well, how many in this meeting know anything about Roman law? Well, I suppose very few of us. But I've just done one bit out, so I'll give you that. And then we've got our Bibles, and most of us know the story of the book of Ruth. All that has a tremendous bearing upon this subject, which we must look at presently. So first of all, I'm going to read you the writings from the writings of another who has been dealing with Roman law and its bearings on certain parts of the New Testament. W.E. Ball, if you want to know the name, and it's a valuable book. If ever you come across it second hand for a few pence, whatever you do, buy it. And if you don't want it, put it on the shelves of our library, or give it to me, I don't mind what you do. W.E. Ball. This is how he speaks, and he translates the passage thus. Until the ransoming accomplished by the act of taking possession of the inheritance. Now that sounds a mouthful. A mouthful. Now let him explain. When a slave was appointed heir, Although expressly emancipated by the will which gave him the inheritance, his freedom commenced not upon the making of the will, nor even immediately upon the death of the testator, but from the moment when he took certain legal steps which were described as entering upon the inheritance. Now that's valuable, isn't it? This is the ransoming accomplished by the act of taking possession. In the last words of the passage, to the praise of his glory, there is an allusion to a well-known Roman custom. The emancipated slaves who attended the funeral of their emancipator were the praise of his glory. So the more slaves, the more glory. So, testimony emancipation, as it was called, was so fashionable a form of posthumous ostentation the desire to be followed to the grave by a crowd of freed men wearing the cap of liberty was so strong that very shortly before the time when the, when the Apostle wrote, the legislature had expressly limited 
the number of slaves that an owner might set free by will. Well, that's only just in passing. But you see, you benefit, you don't lose, by bringing light to bear upon the scriptures of anything in the nature of custom and practice at the very time. Oh, I know we could be saved without knowing anything about the laws and the Medes and Persians and all these others, but we can be saved even more clearly and fully and wonderfully if we bring all legitimate means to make the Word of God speak its message. Well, that is the, the reference to outside law. Now let's turn to the law of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 25. This, of course, is not a law that obtains in our country. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. But this was the law that was written and was enforced while Israel were a people, having to do with marriage. And one of the reasons why they were so concerned about marriage and intermarriage and tribes and whatnot, was because the inheritance was involved. Every tribe had its specific inheritance. And if they played fast and loose, one tribe marrying with another, well, they wouldn't know whose was which, would they? So they were not allowed to just overstep all boundaries. It had to be within certain bounds. Otherwise, you'd get an unholy mess, and nobody would know just where the inheritance began or ended. If, of verse 5, if brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. She's forbidden. Her husband's brother, now let's um, rather limit it, but if you look in the margin, if you have a margin or note in your Bible, it says the next king's man whoever he may be, the next kinsman shall go in unto her, take her to him to wife, perform the duty of her husband's brother unto her, the next kinsman. And it shall be that the firstborn which he bears shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead. Although that man is the real father of the child, that child bears the name of the man that's dead. That's the provision of God. Oh, do you see what Christ did? He came into this world. He did what he did to bring back the name of the dead that it should never be blotted out and lost. We'll see that more presently. And it shall be that the firstborn which he bears shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead that his name be not put out of Israel. Now, if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her. Of course, it's good to see that the law allowed a certain amount of Liberty. He, he, I don't know what was the matter with the woman in any particular case, but he said, I like not to take her. Then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders, and loose his shoe from off his foot, and spit in his face, so he's got to go through it a bit, you see, and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto the man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name should be called in Israel the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. There are other customs which we shall come across in Israel which refer to the shoe as a uh, symbol of authority. Passing over the authority from the father to the authority of the new husband. And to this day, people do it and never read the Bible at all. They tie an old boot on the back of the cab, don't they? Come right down the ages. Well, now, that's the law. We are not living under that law. We're under no such obligation, but Israel were. Well, now, when we come to the book of Ruth, we get it now sketched out in a lovely little story. This law in operation. And by the time we've gone through the book of Ruth, 
I believe you will see more clearly than anything I could say to you what it means for a forfeited inheritance to be redeemed by the king's man. You will see that on this chart, when we were dealing with redemption, in verse 7, we had the door of the Passover with a sprinkle of blood. But now we are dealing with redemption of the inheritance, we've got a sheaf of corn. And the name Ruth across it. Because we associate Ruth with the gleaning and all that came out of that which we shall see presently. Also behind the word witness of the Spirit, you see a strange looking word, Goel. G-O-E-L and sometimes G-A-L are the ways in which it is spelt in English. But that word is the next of kin. That word is the Redeemer. Now before I go a stage further, I want to make this very clear to you. That many times when we are dealing with key words in Scripture, we have to remind ourselves and others, now, this word is a translation of this particular Hebrew or Greek word, but don't mix it up with this word because they differ. But in this case, there isn't one exception. There isn't a reference in the Old Testament to the word Redeemer, which is not this word Gunner. Well, you say, why all that stress upon it? Well, the reason is this. I can understand a man being my next of kin. But when I come to the prophet Isaiah, he goes on and says, the Lord of hosts, the creator of heaven and earth, Jehovah himself is my next of kin. He uses the same word, he doesn't hesitate. God himself is my kinsman redeemer. Well, how can that be? And isn't it blessed that Isaiah who puts us the problem gives us the answer? Isaiah says, the mighty God is my kinsman. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be wonderful, counsellor, the mighty God, you got it, Emmanuel God with us. So that this kinsman redeemer is asking aloud for the coming of the Saviour, who was born a man, and yet bore the name Emmanuel, God with us. Well now we go to the book of Ruth, and see a little more the way in which this bears upon the inheritance, which was forfeited by death, being restored and brought back. This book immediately follows the book of Judges, and it belongs to the period of the Judges. And the last verse of the book of Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Not a very pleasant state to live in. And then right in the midst of that chaotic period, we get this little gem of a book. And the one who stands out brightest and best was not an Israelite at all, but a Moabite, an outsider. A wonderful little bit in the Bible about outsiders. That's where you and I come in. You want to watch this, that God wouldn't allow a Moabite to come into the story. Not a Moabite. No, no. But a Moabite is, yes. You wouldn't allow a Canaanite to come in, but a Canaanite is Rahab the harlot? Yes. Why? Why the entail comes down through the male line. And they must be out of it. But the woman comes in and the seed goes on through her, but it's the other side. So you see, there's a reason why the man was put out of it at the birth of Christ, Joseph. Oh no. But the woman, yes. All these things are in perfect harmony. The God who wrote the book of Ruth and the law of Moses and the gospel according to Matthew, he knew. Some people don't think he did, but we can see that he did. Now then, this wonderful little story, the book of Ruth. How far we'll get through it, I don't know, but we'll do our best without spoiling it by hurry. You'll notice that the first verse says there was a certain man who lived in Bethlehem, Judah. And it's rather suggestive that you were reading your own language, if you were Hebrew speaking, you'd say this man lives in the house of bread. Lechem is the word bread. So here's a man who lives in the house of bread going down somewhere else because of the famine. Oh, you say there's something wrong here. Yes. See? First sign of famine, famine away he treks down to Moab. And all the trouble ensues. 
And when her last Naomi gets back, she does what so many of us have done. She says, the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. Well, who told you to go down Naomi? You see? But that's another story. And he took his wife and his two sons and they went down into Moab and continued there. And then tragedy fell. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Then the two sons married two women of Moab. And then they died. And left three widows. Well then, the time came when they began to realise that something must be done. And Naomi heard that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. So she came to the conclusion that she must go back. Well then she said to these two daughters, now she said, you return to your own mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you in the house of a husband. Now that's ancient, isn't it? Because somebody would say to you, well you won't get much rest when you do get married. Ooh, there's no rest in getting married, but when you live in these days, you see a woman would marry anybody, didn't matter what he looked like, rather than be unmarried. There was a great slur then on an unmarried woman. Today it's the other way around, possibly many times. So Naomi said, you, oh I pray you might find rest, each of you in the house of a husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said, surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And then she has that expostulation with them, which sounds so crude in our modern way of thinking. She says, Supposing I were to be married again today, would you wait until children that were born to me grew up, you see? He said, well, that's an odd thing to say. But don't you see what Naomi said? She said, I know the predicament we're in. You haven't got any option to marry anybody else in the land of Israel. You've got to marry into this tribe. You've come into connection with Israel. You can go back to your own people and marry anybody there if you like, but you can't marry just who you like in Israel. Well, you won't wait for me, will you, if I start all over again? So she said, I oh, wouldn't you invest just accept the situation and just go back. So she comes to this, that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and left her, and Ruth never kissed her, but stuck to her. I think there's a moral in that somewhere, but I'll leave you to keep it out. And she said to Ruth, she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Oh, you can't go back to the people without going back to their gods. Of course, that was included. Return now after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Oh, what wonderful words. Thou remain like letters of gold till the day of judgment falls. Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if all the death part thee and me. That's Ruth. So, they go back. And do you remember that Naomi said the Lord had dealt very bitterly, don't call me Naomi. Of course, if we were reading a Hebrew, she said, don't call me sweetness, call me bitterness. She was playing on the name. Naomi means sweetness. Now she said, the Lord's dealt bitterly with me, call me Mara, bitter. Now chapter 2. We have another little picture now to look at. We change the scene. We're back in Bethlehem. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth. And in those days, a mighty man of wealth was under the blessing of God. Didn't mean to say anything wrong. God promised that he would bless them in basket and in store who adhered to his word. And evidently this was a sign that, uh, that this kinsman was an upright man. And he was of the family of Elimelech. He belonged to the very family. And his name was Boaz, which means strong. 
And Rooster the Hobart has said, now it doesn't say that Naomi said anything to her, I'm so glad she wasn't nudging her and whispering to her. Apparently she learned a lesson, she left the Lord alone now to do his own work his own way. It was Ruth who said to her mother-in-law, let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. So she said, go my daughter. I, I dare say she was itching to say, I hope you find the right place and uh, what about turning up that road and going through the gates there? No, but she didn't. You and I have done that, haven't we, sometimes? Or she didn't. So it says, she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers and a hat, hat, it just happened. That's how things happen to us, isn't it? But sometimes things happen to us because the hand of the Lord's directing us and he was doing this Oh, there was no chance about this. She went out of the little cottage and turned this way instead of that. She didn't know why. The Lord did that. And her hat was to light on a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. So she's going to the king's man, although she doesn't know it. Well then, um, Boaz says, who is this damsel? And they tell him, and he's rather attracted to her. So he says, uh, don't you go and be in any other field. You just abide here by my maidens and uh, I'm giving charge to the young men that they treat you with respect. And when the time came to go back, he gave her an extra dose of beanings to take back. She went home to her mother-in-law and when her mother-in-law looked at her she said Where hast thou been today? Verse 19 And where wantest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had walked she said The man's name with whom I walked today is Boaz. Boaz, she said. Boaz! The very next of king. Oh, she said. Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. Now whatever can Naomi be? How can the action of Boaz, allowing this woman to have a big apron full of gleanings, have any reference to the dead or all buried in Moab? Ah, but Naomi meant, I see what's coming. Oh, she could see a wedding on the way. She said, God has not left off his kindness to the living or the dead. It's coming. This is the next of kin. We started. The man is next of kin to us. One of our next kinsmen. There are four words in this chapter two that I think it will do us good to pause for a moment and notice. First of all, chapter two, verse one. And Naomi had a kinsman. Now you mustn't jump to the conclusion that that's this word goal. There are more words for kinsman than only one word for redeemer. Now this word kinsman is the word to know. Someone who is an intimate. It's the very word that comes in Isaiah 53, verse 11, when it speaks about our Saviour. I think you might like to get the exact verse, because he is the true kinsman redeemer, ultimately. Isaiah 53. Verse 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous sermon justify many. It's that word. By his intimate knowledge, his intimacy with us, his beginning to share with us. He's a king's man in that sense. Now in verse 3 we have another reference. He is of the kindred of Elimelech. And this is the word that we get in the book of Genesis, creating after their kind and in their families. So he was after their kind and in their family. And that's the most important thing to remember. Christ is not the kinsman of any but that true seed. There are some who, because of their great breadth of humanity, they want to bring fallen angels and the devil himself into the realm of salvation at last. Well, that's very nice to feel like that. 
But they must, first of all, show that these have a kinsman redeemer in Christ. That's a bit difficult, isn't it? And then the next word is in um, verse 20. She says, the man is near of kin unto us. And this one means to be very, very near indeed. To draw near. And I think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Not a saviour afar off. But he came where he was. That's what my saviour did. He didn't stop up there in the glory and look down and say, Oh, I do pity him. No, he came. And then finally, we've got the word we're concerned with most. In verse 20 again, one of our next kinsmen, my margin reads, perhaps yours does, one that hath right to redeem. So he is the kinsman redeemer. Not from sin, or we couldn't forgive anybody's sin, but he could bring that inheritance back. And that's what he's about to do. Well now, chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee? Here's this word again. What does she mean by seeking rest? Oh, get married. I say things go all upside down on there as time goes on. This was going to be a, a, a nice rest for Ruth to get married. That it may be well with thee. And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Now I've got to tell you something. Oh, I think Naomi was enjoying herself now properly. She said, look, listen to me. Tonight, he'll be following the usual custom of the land. After the winnowing of the barley, he'll stop there. Because if he didn't, when he went next morning, it'll be all stolen. They couldn't protect it. So they never left the threshing floor till it was all done. He slept there every night. Well, she says, there's your chance, Ruth. And then she gave us some very up-to-date advice. Very sane advice. She said, wash thyself, therefore, and anoint thee. I don't think she said, make yourself up like a painted doll. I don't think she meant that. But she did run against the other idea, that because you're going to do the service of the Lord, and because you may have some element of sanctification about you, well, the only way you could manifest that is to be the biggest fright on earth. Have you met people like that? I have. And I've heard them actually lecture young girls because they wanted to wear some sort of stocking to the others. Oh, God in heaven's looking down to see whether it's got ribs in it or whether it hasn't. Now, this, this woman said to her, you're going to see a prospective husband. Well, the Old Testament says, as a bride adorneth herself for a husband, so why not? Unless it leads you astray, well in fact you better not get married at all. Wash thyself therefore and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. But, always another bit of up-to-date advice, at least I believe so, but make not thyself known unto the man until he should have done eating and drinking. Hmm. Yes. So, then she says to her, now, in our eyes, it's a very strange thing to tell the young woman to do. You mark where he lies down to sleep. And you go lie at his feet. And I'll tell you what to do. And he will tell thee what thou should do. Because he'll know what you mean. This other meaning. So she says, all that thou sayest unto thee, I will do. So she went to the floor. She waited until Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry. That was there too. And he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down too. And he came to pass at midnight, he was suddenly conscious. And so he said, good gracious, there's a woman here, at my feet. And then she said, I am Ruth. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid. That was the claim to marriage. For thou art the Goel, thou art the kinsman redeemer, thou hast the right to redeem. She wasn't playing fast and loose with morals. She was simply claiming what the law said. She said, you're the next of kin. All our inheritance is in the air, we've lost it. The father and the two sons are gone. Thou hast the right to redeem. And he said, blessed be thou the Lord, my daughter. 
And he was not quite a young man, though, as you see. For thou hast shown more kindness than the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. So he said, I'll do what you require of me. But, oh, there's always a little but in these things, and that's just like life, isn't it? Even Shakespeare puts his finger, he says, the course of true love never did run smooth. There's always buts and peradventures coming on at first. Now he says, it is true that I am my near kinsman. However, there's a kinsman nearer than I. Oh, I think poor Ruth's heart went down to her boots. A kinsman nearer, yes, he said. Now, why is that slipped in? I think it's this. No man can by any means redeem his brother. That's the nearest kinsman, but he's a failure. All right, if once you recognise a failure, then the true kinsman can come in. So first of all, this nearest kinsman's got to be given the chance to see whether he will redeem the inheritance. And of course if he did, that's the end of the little story. But it wasn't, as we shall see. Now again, a little bit of wisdom. In spite of the fact that this couple now knew they were in the will of God, and therefore they could say, well, what's it matter what people say? Well, it does matter, friends. I don't tell you to anybody. But I have no right to flout everybody's opinions because I have to feel strong enough to do it. I have to remember somebody else's conscience. People say, oh, I don't quite see you through that if you belong to the Lord. I say, well, all right. The apostle says, I'm really at liberty to do it all, but I neither eat flesh nor drink wine or do anything that causes my brother to stumble. So, this man said to this woman, verse 14, now wait till the morning. But don't let it be said that a woman came under the floor. Bring your veil, take this measure back, but get away before it's too light. Because you see, you can easily have things said that can spoil the purity of an action. <coughs> so, chapter 4. Then Boaz went Boaz up to the gate. Now, the gate of a city was the court of justice. They didn't have a building, they sat in the gate. It was where all that transaction was carried on. And behold, the king's man of whom Boaz spake came by, going on his daily work. Unto whom he said, Oh, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he did. And then he took ten men of the elders of the city. Did you notice ten? And you notice how many ten come in the parables of Christ when he's dealing with a company? Ten was the quorum. You couldn't found a synagogue anywhere unless you had ten. Must have ten. But here's his jury. We have twelve today, but he had ten. That was the legitimate one then. And so he told them. He said, Naomi that is come again out of the country of Moab, spent in the parcel of land which was our brother Elimelech. I think when you're in love you get a bit artful, this man was. What he put forward first was the nice parcel of land, you see. And I thought to advertise thee. I think that's about the earliest reference to advertisement for selling property in existence. And when I was going round the station at Morgan to decide where we would have one or two bills pasted up, I remember telling the man, the agent, and he said, oh, I'll go back and find that. So I hope you read the whole book. I thought to advertise to you, saying, find it before the inhabitants and before the elders of the people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not, then there's nobody else except me. And then if a man didn't go and say, I will redeem it. Well, of course, a parcel of land is valuable, isn't it? Then Boaz brought the bit out that he hadn't said. He said, what day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, you're going to buy it also of Ruth, the Moabites, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. Oh, he said, if that's the case, that finishes it, I can't do it. We may not fully know why, but we can understand there may be objections and difficulties with regard to his own home life. So that led him out. Then Boaz steps right in. Then they have a little 
a little reflection of that piece we read in the law of Deuteronomy 25, they didn't spit in his face. Oh no, there wasn't so, uh, so far, far gone as that. But they did have reference to the plucking off of a shoe, as you'll see in verse 7. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbour, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. So now in the presence of everybody, the transaction had been done legally. He had given the original first kinsman his chance. The first kinsman said, I can't do it. He says, well now the door's open for me. And that's true of us all. Not one of us can step in and save our brother. We can't save ourselves. We have to admit we cannot do it. And then the great true kinsman, he comes to our rescue and delivers us from all these complications. And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all of us Elimelech and all of us Kilions and Marlons of the hand of Naomi, the three men. All the inheritances that have been involved would all now be brought back. Moreover, Ruth the Marbites, the wife of Marlon, have I purchased to be my wife. Now the only one who could lose his inheritance was Barad. Ruth could ever lose it. It devolved now upon the shoulders of Barad. And as he stands there as a type of Christ, the strong one, it's secure. And so is ours, in the fullest sense, secure forever. For until we can believe that Christ can fail, nothing can ever interfere with our inheritance or ever be forfeited again. I have purchased to be my wife to raise up the name of the dead. You see, each time they mention this marriage, they're raising up the name of the dead. All the blessed thought to think that somebody else is going to raise up the name of a person that's dead, that that name may continue. That's only an Old Testament way of speaking about our resurrection and newness of life and position in the day to come. That the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. These were just as sure witnesses to this legal transaction as though you were in a solicitor's office and put your finger on a little bit of red paper and said, Under your breath, I'll give it to my own deed and sign the thing. Just the same. Witnesses. All they knew what they were doing and it was legal. The Lord make the woman that is come into the house like Rachel and like Leah which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. So they not only bore their witness but they wished them well. And let thy house be like the house of Paris who came are there under Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee, of this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, without a Redeemer, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age for thy daughter-in-law which loveth thee, which is better for thee than seven sons hath bought him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And the women, her neighbours, gave it the name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So into the very line of Christ, into the line of David, comes Ruth the Moabitess. 
There's grace for you. The very line of David has got a strain of Moabite in it. And so you see, all right in the beginning, there was this suggestion on the part of God that the poor outsider was remembered by him, even though it wasn't very dominant and prominent. Then it ends up with a genealogy. Perez, Ram, Abinadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. Well now that's a wonderful little story, isn't it? Of itself, it's Surely it, it's, uh, it beats some of the novels that you might read. It may speak about some things a bit more plainly than some folks like. But at the same time, these people were dealing with actual facts of the head of faith, laws that were in operation and couldn't be evaded. And here we have the exercise of a king's man redeemer, bringing an inheritance back bringing, as it were, the dead to life again as far as humanly possible, and continuing on. Well, now we come back to Ephesians chapter 1, with all that in the back of our minds. And we read again, that this sealed and earnest that we have in chapter 1, is unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. We've just got a few more minutes, so I won't overshoot the time. But there's a reference to the um, there's a reference to this um, that I want to read now again from um, the redemption of the purchased possession. Had the Apostle simply intended that the seal and earnest guaranteed the entry into the promised inheritance at last, it would have been easy to have said so. This somewhat strange expression challenges us and demands fuller inquiry. The word is pedipoiesis. Pedipoiesis. And it occurs five times. We have it here in Ephesians 1. We have it again in 1 Peter 2, where it speaks about a peculiar people. And we have a similar word, not exactly the same, but a similar word in Titus, when it says, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now this word is used in the Old Testament of Israel. At the giving of the law, if they only obeyed the law, they should be a peculiar treasure above all people on the earth. Or it comes out in the last of the prophets. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him. They shall be mine, saith the Lord, in the day that I make up my jewels. Jewels. And all this is associated with this word, the purchased possession. Something that was peculiarly the treasure of the Lord. And then you'll find this is referred to once more in Ephesians, and I think we ought to refer to that. Chapter 4. He says in verse 26, I won't go into this in detail because our time is almost up. But I do not read our version, Be ye angry and sin not. I read it. A question. Can you be angry and sin not? Because you want to leave that with you. But I've discovered in my own case that I can't be angry and then when it's all over go down on my knees and say Lord I thank thee I was angry today at so and so. I have a great feeling that until I get to glory there'll be a good deal of evil mixed up with me getting angry. Now you may be so much further on the road that you could be angry and sin not. But this also leads itself to the other translation. He raises the question, can you be angry and sin not? Well, you say, I can be righteously angry. Well, verse 31 says, put away all anger. He doesn't say a bit of it, all of it. Can you be angry and sin not? Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Oh, you see, 
Even a psychologist who doesn't believe God at all will tell you that when you get angry, you're losing control. Says the scripture, yes, and you know somebody else will come in and take, take control if you're not watchful. Neither give place to the devil. Then further down, verse 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby he is sealed unto the day of redemption. Some people have a difficulty in believing that the Holy Spirit is a person. They speak about him as gifts and graces, but you can't very well grieve a gift. You can't grieve a person. So I suggest that be weighed by you. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. So this fact that we have this sealed and this wonderful inheritance should have an effect upon our attitude one to another, you see, as well. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now you say, oh, well, that's only practical truth. Yes, friends. But if all our teaching doesn't lead us to practical truth, I think we're on the wrong track of wasting our time. And so we've got the day of redemption in the doctrinal section, and we've got the day of redemption having a bearing upon the practical section, which is all to the good and all that it should be. Well, now that means that we've given Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, some sort of survey. We've considered the nature of the blessings, the sphere of the inheritance, we've seen the redemption in its two aspects, the seal of the earnest, and there I think we shall have to say that's as far as our limitations will forbid us to go. And when we meet together next time, we shall be picking up the next section in Ephesians 1, which is the great prayer that follows this revelation of divine truth.